Throughout this series, we have repeatedly heard that ambitious EU and national policies backed by effective implementation plans are key to driving the large-scale change that's needed for us to decarbonise and achieve energy security. We rely upon policymakers to look beyond what we can see as individuals to protect us from the threats ahead and deliver societal improvements that will enhance the quality of all our lives. But long-term gain generally necessitates short-term pain, with national investment in the future drawing criticism for not focusing on the here and now. So how do politicians think big while balancing the pain points that affect their constituents today? Must we look towards EU policymakers to ensure that our long-term direction of travel transcends governments? And if so, how are these policies formulated at a European level and then translated to appropriate implementation at a national level? To find out, I'm talking with Brian Ledden, who swapped his career as an engineer to become a Green Party TD and now sits as the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Change, and Tanya Harrington, former researcher at the European Commission and ministerial advisor and now chair of Renewable Energy Ireland. I'm Paddy Finn, and this is the Electricity Exchange. Tanya, Brian, it's great to see you both. Uh, how are you keeping? Really well, thank really you. Good. Really well. Yeah, fantastic. Brian, what are the key mechanisms that are uh, driving this current phase of the transition? And Tanya, how through your work with REI are you building upon this to have more sectoral specific targets that are ultimately achievable? So what the government has done, it's, it's, it's passed a climate act. Uh, it's in, in turn, we talked about the targets and, you know, they're, they're locked into the act. But what's also in there uh, is the principle of carbon budgets. So this is... Uh, self-imposed ration on the amount of carbon uh, we will emit uh, in the next five years. And we've set also a carbon budget for the five years after that and a provisional one for the five years after that as well. And then with those carbon budgets, those five-year carbon uh, rations, we'll say, uh, those are each going to be subdivided into what are called sectoral emission ceilings. So whether it's agriculture, transport, electricity, industry, heating, uh, these will all have uh, their own uh, ration within the, the, the broader five-year carbon budget. So as Chair of Renewable Energy Ireland, I have the privilege of um, trying to amplify the key messages from the clean energy technology trade associations. So the board is comprised of the CEOs of each of those, which Paddy's uh, DRAI is, 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 is a member. So um one of the things that's really clear is, and one of the things we're working towards now is a kind of a communications tool kit that all of those trade associations can use, which says our policy framework is very clear, right? So we have the EU legislative framework, which has been you know, transposed into domestic law. We have the Climate Act. We have the Climate Action Plan. We have the carbon budgets, and now we're going to have sectoral budgets to support those. There are some gaps, which I think are around a demand um, policy. Um, and I think maybe even hydrogen, we don't have a state hydrogen policy. But one of the things through OREI, I think is really important to do is to say, take those carbon budgets. Look at the amount of carbon. I almost see it like a like a rubber, you know, like I have to rub out all of this shading. I have to rub out and I, I bring it back to the carbon budgets from 2025 to 30 and from now to 2025. We're already in 22, so we only have three years, 36 months. What do I need to do this month and next month 
in terms of market constraints, structural issues, um, regulatory barriers, um, funding. You know, what are the things planning grid? These are so what we're doing in OREI is we're like specifying the actions that need to be taken to decarbonize in line with the carbon budgets across electricity, heat, transport. And we're also going to amplify the messaging around the, the enabling pieces like grid and having a flexible, robust grid and um, route to market and planning system. And we do that as an effort to contribute to, to the to the decision making processes that are there to bring the expertise around the table and to act as a voice for the clean energy sector energy sector, renewable sector in Ireland. And Tanya, your, your background mm-hmm. uh, is policy, regulation and governance, mm-hmm. uh, which is a set of skills that could be applied in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. But your focus has been on decarbonisation, energy security for years now. Mm-hmm. Um, can you take us through the why? Um, well, the why, I suppose, if I was to go back to the very beginning, I'm a historian at heart, actually. So um, I love sort of looking at things over a long perspective of time. And through my study in history, I was really interested in statecraft and, of course, public policy is strategy for states. And my first sort of foray into that was into security and defence policy. So I actually worked on the emerging common foreign security policy architecture in Europe as an intern in the European Commission. But security and defence, no no less 25 years ago than today, um, energy policy is very closely aligned to that. And I suppose I pursued that interest in various roles, working either into government or inside government as an advisor I was very proud to serve as a ministerial advisor with um, Noel Dempsey. And we produced Ireland's first white paper in 27 years in 2007. It was the first time that we talked about structural reform to the market in competition and sustainable energy goals um, in, in public policy terms. Um, and so it initiated, I suppose, and built on a lot of the work that had come before it, but it initiated that real sharp focus, which was exactly where Europe was going. And so... Um, whether I've worked in public or private companies in academia or think tanks, um, my my I've chosen to stay very close to energy and climate policies because I believe it's intrinsic to how we secure our future for Ireland, but also for the European Union. And it's linked to kind of peace and stability, again, within the European Union, but also within Ireland. Um, and so I was also had the privilege to work on the legislation that established the single energy market on the island of Ireland. And I later went on to do my PhD research in sort of securing the institutional and governance arrangements for that particular market. Um, I've worked across economically regulated markets, a number of them, so communications, postal, broadcasting. So it's many of the principles around economic regulation which apply to multiple sectors. Um, but my, 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 my home and heart, if you like, is always energy and climate. Brilliant. Um, so... For me, so during this series, mm-hmm. um, recording the series was hugely eye-opening to me. I thought I knew my job. I thought I knew my industry. And then I realized mm-hmm. from the stakeholders I got to speak to, I feel like I've been living in a vacuum and I didn't actually realize all of this amazing messaging that's not out there. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at not only the benefits of decarbonization, of energy security, when we look at all of the work, all the various facets of work that are going on, uh, when we look at the impact of, of multiple sectors, I'm very focused on electricity. And we need we look at basically the, the collage of the sectors that need to um, uh, look towards all kinds of different solutions. It's been massively eye-opening, but there's been a common thread through it all, which is the need for effective policy mm-hmm. and effective policy that's followed by effective implementation plans. Mm-hmm. But when we look at the 
what's to be gained by success here. It's it's very considerable. So, you know, in 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 the first episode, uh, we spoke spoke with uh, Paul Dean and Paddy Phelan, and in that we really uncovered from and for me, what was revealing was the benefits to the quality of people's lives mm-hmm. that. I don't think are apparent in the messaging. I wasn't, I wasn't mm-hmm. getting this. And that, you know, if we look at, uh, I think there's a real um, opportunity for almost like a Boris bus equivalent, but one with a really, with a very honest message, which is look at all this money that we're sending out of the country for fossil fuels. Keep this in the country, grow industry here, uh, reduce our cost of living um, because energy feeds into Everything. Mm-hmm. So energy isn't just our our uh, electricity, gas uh, bills, and our cost of diesel for our cars. Energy is the input to our food costs. It's the energy to our serve. It's a feed in um, to it feeds into our service sector and everything. Mm-hmm. So if we crack this, we become potentially an exporter. So we've, we 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 reduce the amount of money that's leaving the economy, increase what's coming in as an exporter, and the Irish, the average person on the street, has. A higher quality of life and less stress. Because mm-hmm. at the moment, if you look at those who can absorb the current increases in cost and energy, they're the lucky few. Those who can abs- who can actually absorb the cost of retrofitting their houses to uh, escape that increase, they're the even fewer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's so much that can be achieved. A huge carrot there, but there's clearly challenges we're getting there. And, you know, I spoke about that, the, the need for effective policy and, uh, and uh, in government. But a huge challenge must exist, Brian, when you are aware, your party are aware, the government is aware of what the potential benefits are here. But they don't, the result doesn't materialize straight away. And that there's nearer term pain points that people are having to deal with. And clearly that must almost create wedge issues uh, uh, arising any time that longer term objective seeks to be brought forward. How do you how do you manage that? How do you deal with that in the world of politics? And perhaps there isn't a mechanism to that fully deals with it. But how does that feed into your thinking in terms of how you bring forward um, what are what is in people's long term best interest? I, I, we're at the very start of this and I think it remains to be seen how we do it. And I, I would say that if we're guilty of anything, um, it has been probably looking at the very high level, you know, where we need to get to in, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And that's really important. And when we've set really, uh, you know, correct and proper strategic targets for reducing emissions and, uh, you know, and, and the various sub targets as well. Um, what politicians tend to do is they they tend to uh, treat those things that are quite abstract as you know these are of course we'll reduce emissions by fifty one percent in the next eight years yeah we'll tick that box of course we'll go to net zero by twenty fifty easy uh, and then when you get down to actually the actions and the policies that uh, give effect to those targets you realize that. You know, these things can be politicized very, very easily. And we've seen it uh, in Ireland in, in the last couple of years of very simple projects, for example, uh, cycle lanes or, um, you know, I could even point down in, in my own county of Limerick, the, all the councillors down there 
decided to write to the Minister for Housing to get him to change the, the building regulations, to ask him to change the building regulations to, so that every new home would have a chimney stack, you know. So the thinking at the uh, uh, at the policy level, at the lower level, the implementation level, um, isn't there at all yet, in my view. Uh, and and the, I'm not answering your question particularly well because I don't know the answer to it. I think we still have to do it. Uh, it's something we've recognised as a committee that you know we've everybody on the committee works very hard, uh, and they've broadly bought in, uh, at, you know, to the challenge that's there. And I think on the committee at least, because because everyone's very vested in it, they do understand that it's very hard. But our colleagues across all the parties, I'm not sure the penny has dropped for them, but um, it just remains to be seen. Uh, you know, how we get to the implementation phase. And we've recognized as a committee and we're going to do a whole series of sessions on communications. How do we explain to people where we need to go, why we need to go there, what needs to be done uh, for us to get there? Um, we're only at the very start of that. So we'll see. And do you feel there's a lot to be done in terms of political process? So like political process is key to actually turning um an idea into reality um through through government um it's it's very important that uh politicians are seen not to exercise bias to continue to represent all of their constituents as well as national national objectives um so i i i'd imagine that there's are there alternative models uh to be looked towards or is this where we need eu policy to be strong and that this is where EU policy helps us to transcend governments, because having spoken to the the wind uh, and solar sector, mm -hmm. an interesting point there was that what we saw in the last decade, that the, that the development of wind on the system really slowed down and tapered towards the end of the last decade and particularly over the last over the last two years. And it, because it was still it had still been feeding off of the impact um, of the kind of 2007, 2008 you know, uh, Green Party uh, in power. We had the all uh, I, the all island grid study, um, really ambitious targets set, and now we're at another cusp of an, of another wave of this again, right? But we can't afford to have some sort of a fifteen year cycle here and competing local uh, and national objectives. So does European policy help us to transcend governments in that regard? I might just kind of building on on Brian's points there. I think I would draw a distinction between politics and policy and between narrative and policy implementation. So politics is politics and politics follows short cycles. And in democracies, politicians have to respond to the needs of their constituents. And that's a very difficult balancing act. Um, they they tend to represent broad churches um, and large swathes of the economy that, that are at varying levels of socioeconomic advantage or disadvantage. So politics, I think, is almost for me, in one respect, um, distinct, but obviously intertwined with um, policy, policy development, which is agenda setting to solve particular public policy problems, setting the objectives, developing the legislation and the supporting regulation to implement that. And I would say at an EU and a domestic level, we have done that with extraordinary skill and ambition. And so every suite of um, legislative packages that have emerged from the EU are highly ambitious, very integrated. Some have very direct effect in Irish law. So they're regulations rather than directives. Um, some even are even delegating acts. And I think so if you ask me, is the 
legislative and regulatory architecture at EU level robust? You know, I would say absolutely yes. And I think, in fact, we're meeting today at a point in time where we have a war in Europe that's affecting, um, obviously, it's the largest humanitarian crisis since World War II. But we also have um, very significant impacts on energy, food and materials markets. And the EU's response to that is significant. So they've put out a very ambitious plan around our relationships with Russia and our relationships internally within our own energy markets and with our consumers. Um, so repowering EU is really, for me, an extraordinary opportunity, a vector for change and one that really offers a chance to pivot very quickly to um, the implementation of policy, which I'm coming to in the domestic sphere now, um, and renewable energy within that. And so if I take it then into the domestic sphere, what we've been very good at is producing plans and policy um, and reports and analysis and data, but where all and it's in, it's in every policy sphere. It's not unique to energy or climate, but policy implementation is difficult because it's it's the point where the rubber hits the road, where somebody loses, somebody wins, and so and this is where a narrative becomes much more important, and you have to amplify political narrative while you're tackling the policy implementation issues. And for me, narrative, actually, the war in Ukraine offers a kind of um a sad but um, unique opportunity to say this is our opportunity to create a clean, green, sustainable island for our future and for our children's future. We do that by harnessing our, our renewable energies, which are an abundant source. We have an, an ability to be energy independent, which is why I'm chair of OREI. Um, I want to try and amplify that message into, into decision makers and explain how we actually are. But to get that implementation, we need to, you know, deploy proven technologies at scale and at pace. And that requires detailed discussions in the detail of what's what the obstacles are. And, and so that requires regular engagement. So I don't think we have an issue to summarize. I don't think we have an issue with policy, the policy framework, the legislative framework, the regulatory frameworks that all stack together at EU or domestic level. What we have is, a, is, is hard work to do very urgently, almost by month, on implementation and on removing the blockages and simultaneously to serve the political class. We need to have a narrative that brings the populace with you, that explains to citizens, this is the golden opportunity. This is the time now, this next decade is the, is the time to do this. And it's in the actions you take today and tomorrow. And here's why. And here's why it's really easy. And we're going to make it easy for you to do that. So I would I would say there's a couple of constituent parts to that. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're saying, like in terms of Brian's mandate to represent the constituents mm -hmm. and a number of the points you raised is that nobody can be left behind here, mm -hmm. right? Um, absolutely not. So it's mm -hmm. key then when we look, when EU policies are formulated, that there's an, an element of uh, respecting uh, mm -hmm. local considerations. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you take us through, obviously we rely upon policy mm -hmm. uh, to look out for us in the long term, mm -hmm. uh, around the corners that we can't see in terms of what's coming. Uh, so from your experience, can mm -hmm. you give us some insights into that method, the methodology mm -hmm. behind policy formulation and how it makes its way down to implementation? Oh, okay. So sure, it's, it depends on the sector that you're talking about, but in, in many large respects, and particularly around um, climate, the EU has competency under the treaties to um, generate policy um, in this space. And so 
What often happens very simply is um, the European Commission will produce a policy document for discussion, a policy paper, um, and then that's brought into, that's refined and then they bring it into the Council of Ministers. The Council of Ministers discuss it. And if there's an agreement on the policy proposal and there's a need for legislation, you get into a, a tripartite um, arrangement with the um, with the Parliament, the Council and the European Commission. And all of that allows for, it depends on the, on the policy area, depends on the particular issue. It's quite a sophisticated and complex um, kind of ecosystem. Uh, but it does produce at the end of it um, laws which have um, direct effect. There are regulations and also implementing and delegated acts under the comatology procedures. And then you also have these directives, which are the kind of the broader hangers, if you like, that they hand to the states and say, you can hang whatever clothes you like on that and make. But the, but that's the shape of it. That's what we want you to have. But you can dress it effectively. You can make you can tailor it to your own your own member state. Because because remember, Europe is very diverse. We we stretch from Malta all the way to, to the Nordics. And so so to, and, and in, in east to west, the geography that we're covering, the, the kind of societies that we're governing, they, they are very, very diverse. So subsidiarity is a core principle of the of the EU system. Um, but in this space, what I think is really interesting, I would observe a trend in um, a tightening and a greater use of, and Brian, would you agree, the greater use of the the kind of the measures, the legislative measures that have almost immediate and, and more direct effect, um, particularly around energy security and achieving net zero. And this is where I think the war in Ukraine has has triggered that response. It has marshaled uh, the member states around major, major decisions which would never have occurred, like switching off Russian gas, switching off Russian oil. And and the consequence of that is it's going to bring a lot of political pain because it's going to cause rationing and that's going to be felt in everybody's house. But that to me, you know, ratchets up the need to get faster about cleaner, greener solutions. So there, it's this it's this balancing. How How do you inflict pain knowingly because it's the right thing to do from a foreign policy perspective. But you actually have to, you know, you have to give people hope. You have to keep them secure in the, with their light and heating and their transport opportunities. So it, I think actually it's a very rare set of circumstances we have right now. And I don't think we need more policy or legislation. It's coming at a rate of knots out of every announcement from from Brussels that you're hearing every day on the news. We just need we need mechanisms for implementation. Just to pick up on that, I I, I find that really interesting. And um, Tanya knows a hell of a lot more about how the EU works than I do. Uh, and it's in- interesting to hear that, like you feel that the the mechanisms that are there are actually suited already to um, you know what we need. I, you know, even in this situation of a war in Europe, mm-hmm. and you're right, and like the evidence of the last few months is that Europe has actually held together very tight. There's been strong consensus around huge decisions. It's mm-hmm. really quite amazing. Um, my fear would have been that the mechanisms aren't there and you get some kind of, you know, like member states going in different directions and lack of cohesion and, you know, ultimately a threat to the European project as well. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing that actually. And, you know, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also interested in that, uh, this idea that, uh, Paddy, you asked, does the do the processes need to change? And I think you know, change you change the process of democracy at your peril because the the you know the knock on effect of that or the unintended consequence of that could be actually very bad. Um, 
But perhaps what we don't often do is engage as many people as we should in a lot of the decisions that we take. Um, uh, and there are exceptions to that that we can see that worked. And the, the Citizens Assembly is a really good example from what is it, five years ago now. Mm. Like the Citizens Assembly uh, was in many ways a cop out by the government of the time. You know, it was we'll hand this really hard decision to 100 randomly selected people uh, and let them tell us what's important. And they did. And they said we need to cut emissions at, you know, I think 7.6% per year um, through to 2030. Uh, and there's a direct line from the work that they did uh, through to the Programme for Government and the 51% cut. And I can't see that we would have got that agreement. Now it is, we're still in target land, you know, uh, we have to move beyond that. But we, we also wouldn't have those targets if we didn't have that level of engagement. And it seems to me that for the implementation of a lot of the, the uh, policies that uh, you know, follow on from the targets, uh, and actually this was confirmed to me yesterday in the committee where we had the uh, local government management association in and mm -hmm. uh, various representatives of the local authority system where a lot of climate action is channeled through whether it's transport or housing and so many things go through our local government system. Uh, and they said it's, you know, it can't be all top down. It has to be bottom up as well. You have to figure out how to engage at the local level with people so that they're part of the decision making process and feel that it's fair uh, that they've been considered. Uh, and and what I took from that is that if you don't do that, actually, you're, you're probably not going to succeed. Mm. In terms of looking at change, uh, certainly wouldn't be looking at changing democracies, uh, the, the core principles of democracy. It's more around, you know, even access to information, um, uh, key access to information and those uh, who are operating in, in industry, be it regardless of what that industry is, be it if it was medical industry for medical, um, uh, if we're looking at, at health, etc., or the energy industry for looking at energy. Um, and... I guess if we look at people, you know, people, stakeholders, people have spoken to throughout this series, there are a number of, they are several steps away from decision makers in government. They would like better access to government. And I would anticipate that also a government and government ministers would like, would also like better access to, to that expertise. Because if you look at it at the moment, you might minister, ministers, advisors, the regulators, then you'll have your key stakeholders like Airgrid, and they will form committees with, with, with stakeholders. And that's a kind of, there's a, there's a, a lot of links there between, as opposed to kind of getting better access. And, but you, Brian, with the, uh, Arachis Committee on Climate Change, you brought a number of, uh, of energy market stakeholders to the table to represent directly um, uh, to government. And how did you find that experience? Was it, did it help to, to enlighten people on the topics? And is that something that could perhaps be built on to provide a better link between industry and government going forward? Yeah, I think and what we did wasn't particularly unusual. That's what the committee system is there for. Um, but I think, um, you know, I, I would say this, but I think it's a particularly serious and hardworking committee and they're trying to figure out the the solution to the challenge that we have. And like I'm on a number of committees, but I don't see on the other ones the level of attendance. So often what happens in committees, because politicians obviously are very uh, time limited, they'll pop into committee, ask a question and they're gone to some other committee. In the climate one, they're there for, you know, three, four hours 
uh, every week listening, you know, even if they're not asking questions, they're listening. And I think that's a, that's very reassuring actually. Um, but I think we can do more of it certainly. And, um, and we will, and, uh, you know, as I said, like, I think the latter half of this year, we are going to really get stuck into this communications challenge. Uh, this, you know, how do we bring that information, uh, sell that opportunity, um, you know, examine the role of the media in conveying the message. Is it conveying the message? Um, like we know from the UK from 10 or 12 years ago, I think it was the Burn report, was it? That looked at how the media was uh, communicating the challenge of climate change. And it did, it was a really cold, hard, uncomfortable look. Uh, and it did lead to changes in how the media conveyed the message. So anyway, that's uh, what we're going to spend a bit of time on. And, uh, you know, uh, and we will go back to industry and give them a platform. Um, but we do see the role of the committee uh, as a way of pressuring government, getting that information to government uh, so that it makes the right decisions uh, and airing some of the, the challenges and the solutions uh, to the wider public via the, the, uh, the media that report on the committee work. When we look at what was achieved when we identified the crisis that was COVID and now as we identify the crisis that we're in the middle of in with the war in Ukraine, it's extraordinary to see what can be achieved when you identify it as a crisis. And the challenge with, with the energy crisis outside of the war in Ukraine is that it's almost, it's a crisis with an invisible cloak. Mm. And do do we need to start changing the mechanisms that treat this like a crisis so that, for example, that we have an equivalent of NEFET for energy that brings together a kind of a body of people, a body of industry experts um, that will be able to provide government with a succinct suite of options um, that will be collectively brought together by uh, key experts that we have in Ireland. Mm -hmm. Um, first, of all, I might just, I mm -hmm. wanted to compliment Brian on the work of the Joint Directors Committee. It has been a phenomenal uh, curation of input and it's it's a really valuable uh, report, you know, when it's produced. I think it's still to be produced, but when that's produced, that's a valuable, very valuable record. And I think, you know, to your point about what are the teams and processes that we put in place, it's effectively what, what we're talking about. I think there's a couple of things Um in terms of access to decision makers, it's natural and normal for ministers to rely on their advisors. And I would say what you describe is not so much links or distance, distance steps, but it's a, an ecosystem and the state owns many of its semi-states and it expects input from them. But what I think you're thinking through is how does the broader collective um, set of expertise, be that from industry or academia or from civil society, how is that harnessed? And um, it's a really important part of building that narrative for government. I would say that most recently, the minister, um, Ryan, ran um, a, a stake, stakeholder forum in Dublin Castle. That was a very um, well attended and well represented in its attendance um, of society um, along thematic areas that needed sort of suggestions for next steps. I, I think a kind of a frequent structured approach using that kind of forum enables um, transparent um, input into the democratic process. So that, that is something I would say should be um, strengthened and, and made as a permanent feature of, of our deliberation. Um, I, I think, you know, the NEFET idea 
is it is very attractive in the sense that it what you're looking for really is data scientists and those who understand the opportunities, the science, the engineering, um, the, the the environmental science, the politics, the policy. But you collect those people um, and they offer their data driven uh, analysis to the to government who have to make decisions and are based on the recommendations that they're that they're seeing. The really interesting thing for me about NEFIT was there was daily communication of 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 the of the like the, the landscape, if you like, you could see up and down how we were performing. Now, a public health pandemic affects individuals immediately and climate is no different. But but, but can, will this be, could you replicate it exactly? Would the crisis be so compressed that you could actually run something with that daily set of briefings? Probably not exactly. But I do think what was really interesting that I would try to harness from NEFID was that, that there was a full Taoiseach-led cross-government c- collaboration so all the key departments met on an almost daily basis, I assume, inside government. When when I was in government and it was previous crises, there was daily meetings on these kind of things. So so it it forces those relationships, not forces them, but it, it encourages the opportunity for them to be there. Those relationships get made. People start thinking together around solutions and then bringing in the scientific community. And I would argue industry who are basically the scientists of the engineering of this. You know, that actually informed the thinking. And, and that is something we should do. There's still a sort of a siloed approach to, you know, um, enterprises looking after potentially the enterprise options around offshore renewables and DEC is looking after energy security and renewables and AirGrid's out doing whatever. And they themselves meet together. But there isn't a forum that gathers input from industry into them for decision making at government level. And I do think across government kind of climate climate crisis committee or some sort of such thing chaired by the Taoiseach um, is, would be very beneficial. We agree. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't think we'd necessarily want to look to the semi-states always as yeah. the guiding light in this regard. Yeah. You know, I certainly think that even with certain activity from uh, semi-state participation in the electricity market and, and otherwise mm-hmm. highlights that they're vested interests yeah. and that don't necessarily act in the best interest of Ireland Inc. That's, this is true. And I suppose the state always needs to be mindful of, of, of sort of the competition issues. But and I think really by the point, if I can clarify that point, what I mean by that is Airgrid is TSO, is the state appointed TSO. And and so it's it's it, there is a direct relationship because it's owned by the state, but also because it operates the system. But that's not to say that the engagement should be exclusively uh, with air grid and it shouldn't be that if it is that there's there's something there's something really wrong when we look at eu policies um becoming effective in national implementation plans how are they how are they monitored measured mm. and is the method is the methodology for monitor, monitoring and measurement is it as effective as it needs to be or is that an area also for improvement yeah so, so one part of the last clean energy package that came out of the EU um, was the energy governance framework. And what that instituted was um, each member state um, had to prepare a national um, energy and climate plan, which basically set out how that member state was working towards the achievement of the agreed legislative targets that it had adopted from EU policy into national policy or in, within national policy, they may have wanted to even exceed those EU targets. But it's allowed what what that instrument does is it allows public administration at EU level to slide rule the 27. So you can very quickly see where the outliers are on what issues. 
And then that that does a couple of things. It allows for um, a monitoring and a reporting and a compliance framework. And it also allows policymakers to review what is particularly problematic. So, for example, I noticed today just in, in preparing for this, the, the EU repowering package has, has specifically called out the need to generate these renewable go to areas, which they determine are areas that um, you, there are particular planning processes that will be um, parked or accelerated to facilitate the deployment of renewable energy. Now that that learning can only come from evidence that's generated biannually by the member states and reviewed by the Commission with an assessment report to both pursue those that are errant and need to be brought into compliance, but also to inform future policymaking. So policymaking is a cycle. So it, it says, okay, well, where do we need to go next? What's what's the learning out of this? So, so I think that's that's generally how um, states report on their climate objectives. They also have to report domestically to their own parliaments, uh, which Brian would be is in the hot seat on. Yeah. Yep. So I'm still learning <laughs> on that steep curve. So, so um, we we even though we're talking about policy, large scale changes, etc., the whole purpose of all of this, and we can never lose sight of it, is to improve the quality of life for all Irish citizens. And that has to be at the top. That is at the top of everything. It mm-hmm. has to be at the top and we need to mm-hmm. demonstrate it as such. And when we look in this regard, I guess, you know, talk, speaking with Colonel Bulger, a point he made was that perhaps large grid scale solar is more effective than small scale residential solar. But small scale residential solar is very important because it empowers people. It brings people on the journey and it's also, he referred to it effectively like the gateway drug Mm -hmm. for getting people involved. And that's absolutely key to this going forward. People need to see how it not only directly affects them, but how they are part of this journey, because that is what we're setting out to achieve is an improvement of quality of life for everybody. Um, When we look at that, some of the mechanisms that are in place at the moment around, I spoke earlier about, you really are in the lucky few if you can fund the portion of the uh, asset cost that it is to actually increase the energy performance of your house. Uh, The majority of people aren't living in houses that were built in the last 10 years. So there's a, a considerable undertaking there for us to actually make that shift. And as well as what can be achieved from an energy perspective, uh, from the energy performance of those houses, what can that helps us to achieve in terms of the buy-in, bringing people along on the journey, highlighting to them that this is a journey and you've just seen the beginning of the benefits in terms of your warmer home, your more uh, comfortable uh, living there. Um, do you have any thoughts, Brian, on how we can help to better finance some of the uh, some of these upgrades so that it it is more accessible to to everybody because the knock on mm. benefit isn't just a warmer house for that person it's national buy into uh, a renewable energy program we have evidence from the uh, the warmer home scheme which is the the retrofit uh, scheme for uh, social homes that they have people living in these homes you know their lives have been vastly improved uh, both in terms of their energy costs uh, the air quality and uh, there's really positive health outcomes as well as as economic. Uh, and the evidence is that when one street is done, the other street really demands to be done as well. And that's really positive, you know. So when it's so patently clear uh, what the positive outcome is, uh, then you you start to get the buy-in and you get the pressure on the system, which is good. 
Um, now, the, the the there is huge pressure there, and you know it's it's coming from government. It's five hundred thousand houses up to retrofit them to be two standard by twenty thirty. Uh, it's it's really a huge huge challenge, probably the biggest infrastructural challenge the state has ever undertaken. And there's going to be all kinds of problems with that. Like, where do we get the people who are going to do the work? Where are they going to live? Uh, how do we develop the ecosystem of uh, companies and contractors that are going to do the work? Um, uh, and then another challenge is how are uh, some people and many people going to afford to, the retrofit? And um, there are very generous grants. And obviously the carbon tax is hypothecated is the word we use. Uh about five billion in the revenue of that is basically goes towards grants for uh, for all kinds of uh, both deep and shallow retrofit measures. Uh, but for many people, there's still a gap. Uh, they, you know, they you're you're talking about anything between thirty and fifty thousand, maybe more, even for some houses. Um, so even if you're getting a fifty percent grant, you might be have to put up twenty or twenty five thousand euros. Now, what is coming in the next few months is the the low cost loans. So these are um, backed by the European Investment Bank, uh, people are going to be able to they'll get the fifty percent grant, uh, and then they'll be able to go to the credit union or the one stop shop to get the, the low cost loan, uh, and they'll be paying back that loan essentially with the savings on their energy bills uh, for whatever seven ten years. So that is a very positive step, and um, um, like inevitably, there's still going to be people who can't get the loans and they're going to be outside the system. But, uh, and we will have to refine policy year on year to try and capture those people and bring them into the the net and ultimately get to the 500,000. And it's one of the strong features actually of the Climate Act uh, is that the Climate Action Plan, which is the, what, you know, the, the, the act mandates is revisable annually. So if we're not on track, uh, then more measures, more uh, creative solutions uh, are uh, required. So are, if they are required, then they can be put into the plan on a yearly basis. So I think, um, and the, the evidence we have like, is that there has been a pretty good uptake and SEAI tell us that they are reasonably on target you know, with the plan. So uh, ultimately, we want to get to those 500,000 houses. We want to get to 1.5 million houses by uh, the 2040s, you know, this is, this is a huge, huge challenge, but it's huge opportunity as well. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of people who are in school now who probably should be looking to, uh, that industry as a career, mm -hmm. you know, there's certainly, um, good careers to be made in retrofitting. Mm. And I could add to that if you like, there's, right. there's sort of two, two things for me. The first is just on the, at the domestic level. Um, and I, I work for Post at the moment, so it's it's. But one of the things we've done is we've put together that package of a green loan. We've also developed what we call our green hubs. You may the jumper with you know, going over the house. Angela Scanlon is is our ambassador on that. Um, the point is that we we want to be able to be able to go into a very local um post office, put in your borough rating, um, get it, and then get the suite of options. Understand how much everything costs, put against that your grant, and then we'll provide the loan and we do all the back. The end, the back end kind of pain points. So that's something that, that we have developed to support customers in accessing affordable loans. Um, and I think I would just also sort of applaud the um, the ambition and the scale of funding that 
the government has put towards retrofitting. It's a seismic step forward um, and it's hugely ambitious and it'll take everything to put the skill sets in place that can actually meet the demand that's that's going to come at it. Um, so I, I would welcome that. The other aspect of financing that I just might add is the sort of economy-wide um, climate-led investment. And this is really to what are the global funds doing? Who are they backing? Who are they investing in? And I think um, there's a lot of focus in all of these discussions around sustainability and clean energy, around proven technologies, you know, the stuff that we know how to do. But if you imagine um, that, the, that the earth has, you know, a blanket of carbon around it and 50% of those emissions are targeted through these proven technologies, so solar, battery, wind, but 50% aren't. And so retrofitting, um, built, you know, built, fa- built fabrics, um, cement, aluminum production, um, heavy goods vehicles, uh, public mobility, um, decarbonizing these hard to abate sectors has to happen in parallel. We need to attract climate led investment into these areas to decarbonize them because they are the economy wide infrastructures that support decarbonization. So it, it isn't it's just sometimes I think sometimes in the conversations around clean energy, they can tend to focus on specifically around electricity or technologies that are prevalent in um, electricity generation or demand flexibility. Even that's that's a new step forward and we need more demand management, not less. But um, I just think that we need to expand our thinking a little bit to those hard to abate sectors as well, because they need to be happening in parallel. That's actually where some of this discussion uh, in in previous episodes uh, went to is mm. um how do we we focus so much on on electricity? And again, it's, I, th- I don't think it's just because I'm in the sector that I that I do, but I think that we do focus a huge amount on electricity. But mm-hmm. there's a hugely broader range of challenges to be dealt with, and this is where I think you know we talk about system thinking and mm-hmm. the need for system thinking now at a level that we've never exercised before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at one point, we spoke with David Connolly and Donna Gartland, mm-hmm. who were looking at decarbonizing heat. And let's say Donna would be very much focusing on district heating networks, et cetera, and David on the likes of heat pumps, et cetera. But if we look at David's, uh, David's ambition to install a heat pump, it is only, um, it's only worthwhile doing if there's higher levels of renewables on the power system. So then that brings us to our discussion with Noel and Connell mm-hmm. talking about their struggles and what they need to bring higher levels of renewable on, and renewable energy onto the power system. Mm. And they need... Um, uh, in uh, the continued investment signals and they also need a power system that's able to operate with higher levels of renewables. Mm-hmm. That then brings us on to our storage and hydrogen discussion mm-hmm. which is talking about that there aren't appropriate incentives for the types of storage that are needed to uh, appropriately facilitate the renewable energy coming on board and then you need to change like the market incentives etc. Mm-hmm. So when we look at that and that's just the energy sector mm-hmm. as an like electricity sector mm-hmm. for David Connolly to put in a uh, a heat pump to convince a customer to put in a heat pump and the rationale behind it. All of this has to work and yeah. work really well. Uh, so we were previously able to focus on largely single issues. We were supplementing renewable energy and now mm-hmm. we're not. We have to become dependent on it. Mm-hmm. But also beyond energy, we need to look at communities. So historically, I think in Ireland, we have developed plans around accommodation, accommodating people as opposed to building communities. And I'd be keen to get your your thoughts as to how that needs to change the we uh, and that we we firmly bring energy into the mix but energy is going to be only part of that energy education social amenities etc and how you feel that there needs to be a change in terms of how Ireland approaches the the building of of communities because 
that again, we're back to the quality of life for everybody mm. in Ireland. Energy plays a role in that. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, it, it highly dem- it demonstrates that system thinking approach that's needed. That would have been your background as an engineer, Brian. Yeah. Um, well, the planning piece is huge. Uh, and uh, by that, I mean, uh, where, where we, you know, locate people to live, to work uh, and, and so on. We haven't done that particularly well. And actually it's, it's probably cheap energy has, you know, undermined the need for good planning uh, in the last century, probably. So, you know, it, it became easy to, uh, to live very, very far away from, you know, where you, you know, went to work or school or whatever. Um, so we, we didn't, you know, get particularly good or we, we actually probably abandoned many of the principles of good planning that were there actually before that. If you think back to the 19th century, the, the Victorians at the time were very good planners. And a lot of that was to do with the fact that uh, they had to be, you know, they had to create places where um, these workers of the new industrial revolution uh, lived together and could live together in, you know, happiness and harmony and, uh, and raise families and so on. Yeah, and, and cheap energy probably undermined our efforts at good planning in the 20th century. Uh, and we have to reverse that. And that's really hard because physical change is very, very uh, real physical changes have been made to our country and our urban areas and ex-urban areas. Um, and there is a change, there has been a change in the last few years and a recognition that uh, it makes sense to promote living in the village and in the town and, and in the city as well. Um, and my mind, you have, you have to promote it and you have to encourage it rather than tell people they need to live in these places. You have to say, you know, provide these services and amenities, uh, everything that, uh, a family or an elderly person or a young person might need. Um, so they will want to live in that place. And so that they, mm. they genuinely have everything on their doorstep within five or 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, that's where we need to get to. And we're actually quite a long way from that. We're probably moving in the right direction now. We talk about compact growth, uh, which is really about not building in all these greenfield sites and uh, instead, you know, recognizing that we have an urban fr- footprint and an underutilized urban footprint in, in most of our, our urban areas and to build on those and to, uh, to make use of those. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's something we haven't properly embraced and there's a very direct connection between our carbon emissions and planning. So, you know, if you live in a car dependent society, you're contributing to that 20% of Ireland's national, total national emissions, which is huge. Mm. So we, we do talk about renewable energy and the electricity sector a lot. Um, and we do tend to turn a blind eye to actually a bigger proportion of our emissions is um, caused by how we move around the place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I don't think electric vehicles are necessarily, they're certainly not a, a magic bullet, uh, but they're not the best solution for those uh, th- those transport emissions, a better solution where we actually develop communities and societies where there's a high quality of life uh, and a better quality of life than people currently have is actually to get people living back in the towns and cities, give them everything they need, give them a reason to live in these places uh, and make the idea of living in this distant suburb or 
or the one at house maybe um, just make that the, the unappealing choice. Yeah. I mean, I would I would add to that. I think that, you know, if anything has come out of the pandemic, the silver lining has been a connection to our biodiversity. It's 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 what people crave. It's why we go on holidays. You know, we were looking for mm. we're looking for access to nature and to the sea and to forests and to walks and to time with family. So um, and, and I think that's something that feeds a kind of a that narrative, that idea. You know, this is the selling point. It is the. It's this is the green, clean, secure island that we can have. This is your connection to the to the beautiful nature that's around you and your geographic sort of closeness to that. To, to give that practical effect, I think that you need to have that idea. You need actors in place. Those actors tend to be the, the, those that form government and make decisions, but also those that inform government and are part of civil society. And then I think you need the kind of the institutions and processes that help get over the blockages. And this is where we have our systems of public administration. I think just a tangential point, but slightly related is we are interconnected in energy physically across um, islands, the islands of Ireland and and Great Britain um, and the northwestern Europe. I think there's a need to think kind of institutionally about how we govern that. So we need regional energy governance is what I would suggest on that. But I think domestically we have opportunities here we have a lot of will, a lot of skill, a lot of expertise, a lot of opportunity to get together to to drive this forward. So I think that there's there's very small changes that I'd make. Actually, I would institute the, the, the ministerial process. I would engender hope um, and a connection to our biodiversity as the, as the core narrative. I would um, look to kind of use the tools that Europe are giving us to consolidate and fast track the deployment of proven technologies. And I would look to the global system of financing to bring in that financing for climate-led investment um, for, the, for those really hard to abate sectors. It, I'm, I'm extremely hopeful for the next decade, actually. I do think if we, if we decelerate or keep our eye off the ball, we're going we're li- to lose it. But, but it, it's why we're all here. It's why you've gotten the response that you have. There is an extraordinary swell of support for Ireland to do this. And I, I'm very hopeful for that. I really like the point about biodiversity and hanging on that. Yeah, I think it's it, it is fundamental to us to want to yeah. be in nature and to enjoy it, and we are part of nature. Yes. And, uh, and if we lean into that, and and even if I think we talked about communities creating communities, um, the the happier and the healthier towns and cities are the ones that have the parks and yeah. the greenery and the rivers, and you know, and so like, I suppose in our headlock. <laughs> um, Mm-hmm. effort to to get people living in towns and villages we have to be mindful to actually that um that natural amenity and biodiversity need that everybody has mm-hmm. uh, and um i think it's the key to unlocking broader political mm. support actually yeah i think that's very interesting and mm. yeah we do we we kind of treat climate and biodiversity as Separate, you know, things. separate but related, mm-hmm. but but maybe we don't appreciate just how related they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, or even biodiversity as a first lens, you know. Yeah, and then and then to protect that and sustain it, to protect it in the first instance, mm-hmm. um, and then to remediate it, mm-hmm. um, you you actually have to take the carbon out of the of the of the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think people are very naturally drawn to that to that opportunity. Yeah. I think we could continue to talk about this all day, but I think that's a fantastic point to wrap it up on. Okay. So, Tanya, Brian, thank you very much for your time. It's been been very enlightening. Pleasure. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank, thank, you. thank you, Brian.